Okay, last Sunday, we finished up 35 lessons, 35 weeks in the book of Genesis. And when we began, I had no idea that it was going to be 35 lessons long. And if you asked me halfway through, I still wouldn't have known. That's just what it ended up being. So we spent the better part of the year going through Genesis. And uh, now the question I've been getting all week is, okay, what are we going to be studying next? And the answer to that is, I really don't know what we're going to be studying next. Uh, the lesson today is, 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 a, is a topical lesson, so we're going to switch from, you know, I, I really try to, it's like, when, you do, when we're doing expository teaching, it's kind of like you have the handcuffs on. You can't just talk about what you feel like. You, you, you have to really stick with what the text is saying. So now... Uh, after 35 weeks of expository teaching, I can teach on something that uh, is very much on my heart, and I can we can look at scriptures that tie into that. So this is a diff- different, different kind of a lesson, and I want to point to three people as the inspiration for this lesson here. Why we're why we're having it today? One of them is my wife Allison. That Ch- she Allison was saying for several months, Chuck, when are you going to teach on this particular? subject here, and, and one of the examples, particularly in this class, Allison has been dying for me to share with the group. So Allison, uh, Rodney, a conversation I had with Rodney last week, who's, who's, who's here in the room with us, which uh, in, inspired this also, and then someone that most of you probably have never heard of who's been dead for 100 years named James Harding. So he was an inspiration for this lesson also, and I'll, I'll give a little quote from him at the end of the lesson so you'll find out why he's been such an encouraging example to me, uh, and I really wanted to do this lesson at this particular time. Right now, we are three weeks before the end of the year, so it's a new year coming up, and people are thinking about the holidays and about the end of the year. This is a time when a lot of people take stock of their lives, about what they've been doing and where they're going and what's up next, what's up for the new year. So I think this is a great time to, to talk about some of these things, too, as we're, as we're taking stock. Now, this may, this, this may, I, t- I teach the Bible a lot in, in, in the group here. We've got a lot, had a lot of lessons, a lot of material. For some people hearing this lesson, this may be the most important lesson you ever hear me teach. Most important in the sense that it could have more impact on your life than any other single lesson. And my hope is that this lesson will leave you with some pictures in your mind that you will never, ever be able to get rid of, some good, good pictures that will be helpful to help you. What I want to start off with is, a pic, is, is I want to start off with a map. And this is a map that uh, I'm an engineer, I'm a civil engineer, so, so I, I, I use maps and drawings all the time to, first of all, so I can understand myself what's going on, and then to communicate to other people where I am or what's going on. If we're going on a trip in the car somewhere, I want to have a little GPS up to see, okay, where are we and where are we going? Where are we supposed to be going? Because it really helps me to know what I need to do next if I've got a map. Now, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is the greatest map maker of all time. And one of the most fascinating maps I've ever encountered is... Uh, it's a spiritual map of the Christian life, which is, which is included in the Old Testament. And we find it in the story of the Exodus coming out of Egypt. So it's in the book of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, 
This is this is my, I, I shared this with my friend Chris Rarden, and he really loves this story, and he he refers to it as the map or the Exodus map, and he talks about it with me all the time. He's so excited about it, and it's actually it's it's mentioned it's alluded to in three places in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter three and four is one. In Jude verse five, it's just kind of briefly touched on, but the biggest one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. And Paul goes into detail in it, and uh, some of the early Christian writers will touch on it as well. One that particularly had an impact on me was, was uh, Gregory of Nyssa in a book called The Life of Moses. So the elements of the Exodus map, the, the story of the Exodus map is the whole story of the Exodus out of Egypt, leaving Egypt and going into the Promised Land, is basically a map of the Christian life. And I want to give you the elements of the map. First of all, the people start off in slavery. Now, we are obviously in slavery to sin. Then the past, the death of the Passover land marks the time of escape from the land of slavery. The people are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And, uh, and then you can take a guess. Who, who do you think Pharaoh might possibly represent? He is the ruler who does not want to let his people go. You can probably take a wild guess as who that might be. I see some smiles in the room that that's a, that would be a, Satan would be a good nominee for that one. The pillar of cloud and fire leads them out of that land and through the wilderness in, all the way to the promised land. So it would be the Holy Spirit. And then the water that they cross through to get out of the land of the dark kingdom, to get out of to, to escape the water that they pass through. There's a wall of water on each side, and Paul says what that is, that that's baptism. That's how you get out of the, uh, the, of the dark kingdom. They're baptized in the, in the cloud and the spirit. And then, but they're not in the promised land. They're in the desert. They're in a land of snakes, scorpions, and no water and dryness. They're in a pretty inhospitable place. And this desert, unfortunately for us, represents where we are right now. We're in the desert. This is the time of testing. And they were tested by idolatry, sexual immorality, complaining, tempting the Lord, all these different tests that they went through, and most of them didn't pass the test, just some of them, some of those who were baptized, only a few of those who were baptized made it all the way to the promised land. Now, some people find that rather discouraging. They're thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm not in the top 1% that made it, the, you know, less than 1% made it to the promised land. Well, Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. This is a warning not to be complacent, but that they'll, they'll make it. And so, so uh, this story, and then the promised land, of course, where they're bound for, we're not, the, the, the goal is not where we are right now. We're in the desert. The goal that we're headed for, the promised land, is heaven. It's, it's eternal life. So that's, we're just passing, this is, the world is not my home, I'm just passing through. We're in the desert, we're headed for the promised land, we're like a pack. The church is a group of people hanging together, trying to help each other to make it to the promised land. So that's, that's the story. And I want to focus on one element of this story. That after the people made it out of Egypt, after they crossed through the Red Sea, they had an immediate problem. Is you're in the desert. 
What's the immediate obvious problem you have? You have thousands upon thousands of people in the desert. What do you eat? What do you drink in the desert? All right, the food source is gone. So I want to start reading in Exodus chapter 16. So we understand this picture. is a very important element in the picture in Exodus chapter 16. So this you've got to remember this story, according to Paul and the writer of Hebrews and Jude, is a map of the Christian life. We're in the desert, just like they were. That's showing us the way. So Exodus chapter 16. The, the, the problem they had as soon as they got in the desert is... There's nothing to eat here. Okay. You didn't say what for. You just said 16. Okay, Exodus chapter 16. That's a, that's a good question. We're going to start reading verse 9. So the people, they, they made it out of slavery. They made it, gone through the water, and they're in the desert. They're not in the promised land, and they're hungry. There's nothing to eat there. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 9. And then Moses spoke to Aaron. Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before God, starting in verse 9, uh, for he has heard your complaints. Now when Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, they looked toward the desert, and behold, the Lord's glory appeared in the cloud. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So it was the quail came up in the evening and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay all around the camp. But when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the desert was a small round substance, white like coriander seed, like frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is this? For they did not know what it was. That thus Moses said to them, This is the bread the Lord gives you to eat. This is what the Lord has ordered. Let every man gather for his family, one umr according to the head count, and number of souls among you. Each one should gather it with those who share your tents. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by umr, see so you gathered much, had nothing left over, he who gathered little, little had no lack. Each one gathered according to the need of those sharing the tent with him. Moses then said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. So Moses was angry with them. Thus they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. So it was on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two umrahs for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is the word the Lord has spoken. Tomorrow is the Sabbath, the holy rest to the Lord. Bake what you'll bake, boil what you'll boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded them, but it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? 
Behold, for the Lord has given you this day as the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Let every man remain in his house. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Thus the people rested on the seventh day. Now the children of Israel called its name manna, and it was white like coriander seeds, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing the Lord commanded. Fill an umber with the manna to be kept for your, for generations, so they may see the bread you ate in the desert when the Lord led you out of the land of Egypt. Moses then said to Aaron, Take a golden pot, put one full umber of manna in it, lay it up before God to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Thus the children of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of Phoenicia. Now an umr was a tenth part of three measures. So, uh, nothing to eat. The Lord provides them bread in the desert. And this is miraculous bread. It shows up in the morning, but when the sun comes out, it evaporates. It's gone. Not only that, it shows up for six days in a row, and on the seventh day, it doesn't show up. And this continues for 40 years. And it's called manna, which seems to come from the word which means, the Hebrew word which means, what is it? So this is like, uh, what is the, the Abbott and Costello, who's on first, what's on second? What, what is it? Yes, that's exactly right. That's what is it. That's the name of no, it. No, so. it's what's on third, who's on first, and I don't know what's on third. Uh, okay, there you go. So there's some, somebody who knows the, the old uh, comedy gag routine there. Uh, so, and the other thing, amazing thing about this, this gave them all the nourishment that they needed. Just think about this. All the vitamins, the minerals, the calories, the trace metals, whatever it is that you need in your diet, they could live on this alone for 40 years without being sick or malnourished. So this is, this is a miraculous food in many ways. The other thing that was interesting about this is they had to gather it every day. Now, of course, on the Sabbath, they're not supposed to work, so they didn't go out and gather it then. But they had to go and go out and gather it every single day. Other than that, and, the, and then on the day before the Sabbath, they collected enough for two days. So why couldn't you just give it once a week? So you gather it up for once a week, and then you just eat it, eat it every day, or once a month or something like that. But no, God says mm-hmm. every day you go out in the morning and gather it up. And each family had to gather their own. So they didn't just say, okay, the priests, you gather it up and you dish it out to everybody. But everybody had to go out and get their own. And it said it was sweet to the taste like something made with honey. It reminds me of what it says in the Psalms about uh, something that's, that's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And it could be prepared different ways. You could boil it or you could bake it. And it sustained them this way for 40 years, and it kept going every, every year for 40 years until they reached the promised land. And God thought this way of feeding them was so important. He said, even after it stops 40 years down the road, I want you to keep one jar of this and keep it before the Ark of the Covenant into the future. I don't want you to ever forget about this manna that kept you going in the desert. <clears throat> Let's turn to Numbers chapter 11. 
verses 1 to 9, it mentions the manna once again here in the story. And this is a very telling, but there's some lessons. There are lessons throughout this whole story of the manna. In Numbers chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. Now the people were grumbling evilly before the Lord, and the Lord heard them and was provoked to anger. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and utterly destroyed part of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place burning, because fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the mixed multitude among them hungered exceedingly. And sitting down, the children of Israel were also weeping and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt, and the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our soul is dried up. There's nothing before our eyes except this manna. Now the manna is like coriander seed. Its form is like the form of ice pellets. The people would go about and gather it and grind it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, then cook it in pots and make cakes of it. And its flavor was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil and honey. And when the dew descended on the camp in the night, the manna descended upon it. So after a time... The people got sick and tired of eating manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, it said it tasted like something made with honey, so it's sweet. Sounds like it tasted good. But the people were bored. And they started to look back at what they ate, the variety of food that they ate in Egypt. And they wanted more variety in their diet. They didn't like the food that God gave them. And they started looking back and reminiscing the good old days in Egypt and all the great tasty food we had back then, all the variety that we had. And they started remembering that and longing for it. And they started complaining to God and to Moses. They were no longer content with the manna that God gave them. Right before the manna stops, at the end of the time in the wilderness, before Moses dies, he explains to the people the significance of them being fed with manna in the desert for 40 years. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And this will be a verse that's famous to, to everyone because Jesus quotes it in the Gospels. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we'll start reading in verse 1. So this is Moses' kind of passionate farewell address to the people. He's concerned about what's going to happen in the future, and he's trying to lay the foundation, teach them the lessons, and remind him of things that will help them in the future. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Every commandment I command you today... You must be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and inherit the land the Lord swore to your fathers. Now you shall remember the whole way of the Lord your God led you in the desert to deal harshly with you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, So he dealt harshly with you and weakened you with hunger and fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know. 
that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word proceeding from the mouth of the Lord. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4, it's also recorded in Luke chapter 4. Satan comes and tempts Jesus. He's fasting for 40 days, and Satan says, Turn these stones into bread. And how does Jesus address Satan? Man shall not live on bread alone. That's right. Jesus says, It is written. And he quotes this. He quotes from this passage we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So when Jesus is attacked by Satan, I think of all the great men and women of history who were done in by Satan. I think of Adam and Eve, Cain, David, the man after God's own heart, Solomon, the wisest man. All of these were done in by temptation. And when Satan approaches Jesus to try to undermine him, he comes back three times saying, it is written, and he quotes from the word of God. That's how Jesus handles Satan and backs him off. It's a great example to me when I am being tempted. Paul says that we are being attacked by the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 6. And he calls us, he says, you have to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And that's exactly what Jesus did when Satan's coming after him. He says, it is written, and he quotes the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want to read Psalm 1. Let's turn to Psalm 1. It's one of my favorite psalms. I think it's so important. It's such a simple, simple lesson, but it's so profound. Someone says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the troublesome, but his will is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water that produces its fruit in season, and his leaf shall not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper." Not so are the ungodly, not so, but they are like the dust the wind drops in the face of the earth. Therefore the ungodly shall not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the counsel of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So, basically two roads. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the sinners. And it says that we need to avoid the company of the ungodly. Uh, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the troublesome. So the person is blessed, first of all, who avoids ungodly corrupting influences in his life. And I stop and think about that. Uh, the, the, the implication to me is not just the people I'm spending time with, but also what I'm allowing into my eyes. What I watch on the internet, I mean, we don't really watch television in our house, but that would certainly apply to the TV, the radio, the internet, uh, movies, 
sports, news, the media, all of these things would fall into that category. Not Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the troublesome. That's the first point that he makes, is you avoid corrupting influences on your life. And then the second point he makes, but who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. This man will be like a tree planted by streams of water, Meaning, no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstances, it will always prosper and thrive. There's a drought coming. It doesn't rain. doesn't matter. It's always going to thrive, do well, flourish, and bear fruit. Well, okay, what does it mean to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night? Okay, it's not just, he doesn't say, reads the word of the law. He's saying, meditates on the word of the Lord day and night. What does that mean? How do I do that? What do I picture in my mind when I think of meditating on the word of God? Does it mean, you know, going up on a mountain and, and, and striking, you know, and getting in the lotus position and, and just, uh, uh, just is, that, is that the picture of meditating on the word of God? What, is that, what does that look like? And I want to share with you an example that the early Christians used that helped them to connect with this idea of meditating on the Word of God day and night. And it goes back to a, a, a wild place. You think people think, what in the world are you doing there, Todd? What, what's this have to do with my life? Go back to Leviticus chapter 11. I'm, I'm reading through the Bible. Uh, now, alternating New Testament and Old Testament, I just finished the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 11, you think, well, that's why in the world are you wasting time reading the book of Leviticus? Well, the early Christians saw a great lesson buried in this story here. Leviticus chapter 11 has to do with the clean and unclean animals. Leviticus 11, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals you may eat among all the animals of the earth. Whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hoofs and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that choose the cud or have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it's unclean for you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it's unclean to you. And the swine. Although it, it, although it divides the hoof, having cloven hoofs, yet it does not chew the cud. It's unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. These, those, these you may eat of everything in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or the rivers, you may eat. But everything in the water or the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales, from all these and from every living creature in the water, which the waters produce, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, these shall be an abomination to you. So, if you're Jewish, you don't eat pork. All right, this is where it comes from right here. The, the people who are Jewish who are still find all, you don't eat pork. Also, I remember I grew up in New Jersey, lots of Jewish people around here don't eat pork, they don't eat shellfish. Okay? Shellfish, obviously, 
Lobsters and clams don't have fins and scales, so you can't eat them either. So and it says, he says, to be a clean animal, a land animal, it has to have split hoofs and chew the cud. One out of two doesn't cut it. It's got to be both. And otherwise, it's unclean. So it says only, you know, like this, the pig, it's got split hoofs, but it doesn't chew the cud. So chewing the cud. Now, for those of us who don't spend much time on farms, typically, if you go uh, driving past, you'll sometimes you'll see the cows, the sheep, the goats, and they're just standing there chewing and chewing and chewing. But you don't see them bending down to eat anything. They're just chewing all the time. Because what happens is they have, their system is designed specifically to eat grass. Now, grass is hard to digest. If we had to eat grass, we would die because there's not enough, we wouldn't get enough nourishment out of it, but their bodies have been designed and their digestive system, they've got multiple stomachs, so they eat the grass and they, they take it down into their first stomach, but what happens is they gotta, they gotta grind it down more, so they'll cough it up and they'll ruminate, as they would call ruminants, they're ruminating, they're chewing the cud. So they're taking the grass, coughing it up, chewing it, chewing it, chewing it, chewing it, taking it back down, cough it up, chew it, chew it, chew it, and back down again. So that's what an animal that chews the cud is. It coughs up what it ate before, and it works on it, and then takes it back down again. Now, you probably are guessing where I'm going on this. The early Christians read this, and they said, oh, the clean and the unclean animals. This is obvious what God is trying to teach us. The animals that chew the cud like the sheep and the goats, they eat grass only and they spend the day regurgitating it and chewing it more. This is a picture of the Christians and the wise people who feed on strictly on the clean word of God and are meditating on it. Okay? They'll eat it in the morning and they'll chew on it all day long. They'll, they'll cough it up, they'll chew it, chew it, chew it, so they can get all the nourishment out of it that's hidden in it. On the other hand, the unclean animals would be like pigs and dogs. What do pigs eat? Every, they eat slop. They eat garbage. They eat things that are half rotten. They eat anything. Pigs will eat anything. They're basically they're like garbage machines. So people, you know, this, you, have, you have pigs so you can take all your garbage, anything you don't want, any, any of the leftover peels and anything Give it to the pigs. They'll eat it, and they'll produce more pigs in the process. So pigs live in the mud, and they eat garbage. They eat indiscriminately. They'll eat anything. So this is the contrast between the sheep and the goats that eat only grass and the cows that eat pure grass, and they ruminate on it, versus the pigs who live in the mud and eat anything. They'll swallow no matter what you give them. They said, look, this is obviously... A picture of what it means to meditate on the Word of God. Between the God is teaching us through the story about the clean and the unclean. And after all, think about this. The story, these animal, the, the distinction between the animals is reflected in the New Testament. What did Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. He didn't say, My pigs hear my voice and follow. He didn't say my sheep hear my voice and follow me. Okay? I have other sheep that are not of this pasture. 
He doesn't say, well, I got sheep here, but I got pigs on the other side. So they're all, he, Jesus' flock is sheep. He's the good shepherd. Okay? On the other hand, what does Peter say? 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. He says, he's talking about the wicked or the people who go back to a life of sin. He says, the proverb is true, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow having washed goes back to wallowing in the mire. So this is the unclean animals, the dogs and the pigs, versus the clean animals like the cows and the sheep. And we even see this in the New Testament. So it's not that far out there. And the other thing is, Several Christians mention this. It's not just, not just one. There's a, f- a few that mention this. No, God is explaining this is the way he wants us to be. He wants us to be like the clean animals. This is the good one, not like the pigs. Uh, Irenaeus in, in, in Nicene Fathers, volume 1, page, page 534. I'll give you the references if anybody wants to check it out for themselves so you don't have to believe me. Clement Alexandria and the Instructor in, in Nicene Fathers, volume 2, page 289. And then there's an interesting discussion, Clement of Alexandria in uh, Miscellanies, in volume 2, pages 362 and 363. And there, Clement is talking about Psalm 1. He's talking about the one who meditates on the the word of the Lord day and night, and he goes back and he explains this. He says, yeah, it's just like Moses said right there. He He goes back to a discussion about the clean and the unclean animals. And it's interesting, he equates... Those who are sitting in the seat of the pestilence, Clement of Alexandria, so this is maybe in the 200s, he says those are the people who are attending the theaters. Now think about that, what the, what the obvious equivalent is today. He says the people, the people who are going and sitting in the theaters and are watching all the immorality being acted out in front of their eyes, they're the ones who are sitting in the seat of of wickedness. They're just sitting there watching this stuff going on, taking it into their eyes. I mean, the obvious the implication, we want to take it into our day, it's the same thing. The internet, the TV, we're sitting down with, with, uh, with the remote or getting up and changing the channel. It's the same, the same idea. And the other thing, I'll, I'll share this with you, you, you know, is the discussion about the fish. Now, I grew up in the, sh- the shore in New Jersey, and so uh, we're close to the coast here in Massachusetts. Uh, when I was growing up, I, my favorite food was seafood. So I have steamed clams, lobster, and we're right along the coast, fresh seafood. Okay, so I like that stuff. And these, these, this is obviously banned, you know, crab, lobster, things like that. And Clement Alexander makes a point. He says, he say, well, why would those things be considered unclean? And he says, well, it's even in the fish. You have the fish with the scales of the clean, and then the things that don't have fish and scales are unclean. He says, the things that don't have fish and scales, that live in the rivers and the sea, they're the bottom dwellers. They live in the mud. You think about it. Carp, catfish, crabs, clams, they, <laughs> lobsters even, I like the taste of lobsters, but they're, li- they're living in the bottom of the sea in the dark, part of the waters they're living in darkness and they're basically bottom feeders so he's saying don't be a bottom feeder okay that that's that's the picture that's there eat the healthy stuff so taking everything we've looked at so far take stock of your life i have a few questions to throw out there for you 
First question, are you living the life of a sheep or the life of a pig or a dog in terms of what you eat and what comes into your eyes? Are you dumpster diving and eating garbage or feeding on the pure word of the Lord? Or is it a mix of the two? Like the sheep and the cow, are you eating pure grass and chewing on it all day long to extract the nourishment that's contained in there, that's embedded in it? People have been Christians a while. Are you like the Israelites? Do you get weary and bored of the honey-tasting wafers from the Word of God? And do your taste buds crave the food of Egypt, the leeks, the melons, the garlic? Do you see that you need to do the work of gathering up this food every morning? You can't just collect it once or twice a week or once or twice a month and hope to live on that. That's not going to sustain you. Do you see this life here in this world as a desert infested with snake and snakes and scorpions? And are you living to make your hope the promised land and seeing your manna as the life-sustaining food to keep you going and strong until you arrive at your final destination? And then looking to Jesus, do you see Satan as your ever-present enemy who's trying to tempt you and the Word of God is your only sure defense and offensive weapon? The one that you need to master and turn to in every spiritual battle that you face. Just like Jesus, our champion, did. I want to close with just some practical suggestions. In, first, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's a verse that most of us are very familiar with. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about uh, the, the uh, every religious group has something good to be learned from it. Even the, the darkest cult, there's usually something in there that you can learn from that's positive. One of the things that I appreciate and in, in, uh, uh, in many years associated with the churches of Christ is a tremendous focus on the Bible. Studying the Bible, knowing the Bible, the Bible is the standard. This is a wonderful thing. I never want to let go of that. And, and, and I want to encourage everybody that we need the entire Bible, not just the New Testament, not just the Gospels, not just the New Testament and the, and the Psalms. We need the whole thing. Three quarters of the Bible is the Old Testament. Think of what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 to 17. This is from the New King James. He says, Paul says to Timothy, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. And from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says, tells Timothy, all scripture is inspired and it's all profitable. Timothy is a Christian. 
His mother was Jewish, and he says, he, what's it, when he says the scriptures that you had from infancy, what's he talking about? He, obviously, he's talking about the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament at the time that Paul's writing to Timothy. It's all inspired. It's all profitable. And if we want to be thoroughly equipped, we need to devote ourselves to it. This is addressed to Christians with the Old Testament in view. We need to know the entire Bible that we can be thoroughly equipped and that's why we spend a lot of time in our group here doing expository lessons and, doing the, and, and studying the Old Testament. It's just to, to really get in the habit of mining the Old Testament for the great gems that are in there that are for us. I, I want to encourage every Christian to commit yourself to daily study of the Word of God and to read, to study the entire Bible. I think it is a great goal. For every Christian to decide to read through the entire Bible at least once during a year. Now, for the average person, that might take about a half an hour. Uh, it would take it would be about it would average out to roughly around three chapters a day to do that. I like to read a book at a time so that I can uh, personally, so that I can get the whole the idea of the whole book and not jump around. And I like to alternate New Testament and Old Testament. So I read a book of the Old Testament. I read a book of the New Testament. And, and mix it up. Uh, there are many read-through-the-Bible plans to help you keep on track for doing that. You don't just have to start in Genesis and, and plow all the way through. There are many ways of doing it so that you don't have to wait nine months to get into the New Testament. We have one on our House Church website, but, but there are many out there. It doesn't really matter. The important thing is that you do that. And uh, I think of the story of the tortoise and the hare. And the lesson from that is slow and steady wins the race. If, you, if you, you do it steadily every day, that's what it's going to take to, to, to really get there. But uh, I would encourage you, this is the, the new year is coming up. This is a great time for people to make decisions about, and you can do it anytime, but make a decision. I'm going to read through the entire Bible. I'm going to get up in the morning and gather the manna in the morning, just like the people in the wilderness did. I'm going to go out and gather it for myself. And I'm going to be eating the manna every single day. I'm going to be in the Word of God every day. At the beginning of the lesson, I mentioned one of the inspirations was a man named James Harding. Uh, he died in 1922, one of the greatest preachers in, in my uh, estimation in the churches of Christ. And when he died, one of his friends was eulogizing him. One of, one of the, the young men, men that he had trained. And he said this about him, which is a wonderful testimony. He says... He says, this man who just died sent more people to reading the Bible than any other preacher. He infused his own love and appreciation for the Word into those who came under his sway. Because wherever he went, James Harding encouraged people to read the Bible every day, and he said three and a third chapters a day is a spiritual discipline to read through it in a year. And he, he, wherever he went, he formed clubs where pe people would form clubs among themselves where they would encourage each other to help each other read through the Bible. They had little Bible reading cards to keep them on track. And uh, he believed that the chief duty of the teacher is, to, uh, is to, to lead people into a daily, diligent, and prayerful study of the Word of God. And he did it himself. I mean, he, before he died... Uh, 1914, he said he he'd, he'd read the Old Testament through 60 times and the New Testament through 130 times. So he was he was a man who practiced what he preached. 
But it was his passionate love of the, of the Bible that was infectious and inspired other people to read. And it wasn't so that he could win a game of Bible trivia and mass up a lot of, of, of facts and knowledge in his head. It's because he wanted to know the character of God. He wanted to know who God was. And he knew that studying the Word of God and meditating on the Word of God was the wonderful avenue to get there, to really understand and know God. So I want, I want to encourage everyone, take stock of your own life and think about the things that we talked about and think about we're on the desert. This is our manna. We need it every day. We need all of it and make decisions to study the entire Bible at whatever pace you want to do it. But I think once a year is a great, is a great goal to devote yourself to studying all the Word of God and to be in the Word of God every day. Amen.